the uncertainty solution isn't finding certainty because that's often not possible. The uncertainty solution is developing mental models that you can fall back on to make better decisions or make you feel better in times of uncertainty. This is the Authority Builder Podcast. This is the place to come if you're building a professional practice and you want to be seen as the leader in your market. We're going to interview the top experts throughout professional services, and we're going to share insights with you to help you grow your firm and be positioned as the only choice that clients ever want. Welcome to the Authority Builder Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gordon. Today, we have an amazing interview for you. I'm talking with John M. Jennings. He's the president and chief strategist of St. Louis Trust and Family Office, a $15 billion wealth management firm. He's an author and a speaker and a leading voice in the space of wealth management and leadership. And his book, The Uncertainty Solution, is an engaging dive into investing philosophy and best practices, as well as an authoritative and accessible guide for anyone who feels maybe inundated or overwhelmed with all of the financial news and data today. And uh, importantly, Charles Schwab said it is a must-have addition to anyone's reading list. Um, and I'm excited to uh, talk with John about it today. John, welcome to the Authority Builder Podcast. Right, yeah. Thanks, I'm excited to be here. Thanks yeah, for having me on. You know, we were talking before, um, like you've got just a, a wealth of experience and knowledge, not just around investing, but around business. I have a feeling we're gonna cover a lot of different topics yeah. in a way, but uh, before we get into all of that, I'd love if you take just a minute and give everybody listening a little bit about your background, like how did you get to this this point in your career? Yeah, well, it started really with my my educational base. So I uh, majored in finance in college, and I went to law school and fell in love of all things with uh, the uh, wealth transfer tax <laughs> in law school. So my my first day at my you know big 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 law firm, you know, I was assigned to like corporate and real estate, and I, and I went in and. I said, I'd like to be transferred over to, you know, estate planning and tax. And they're like, are you crazy? <laughs> uh, and, and I also learned how to fix traffic tickets. So I, I did that for a while, uh, spent a very short time, less than a year at a, at a, at a, a bank trust department. Uh, went, went to Arthur Anderson. So Arthur Anderson, uh, I, have to, I have to explain to younger people what that is. But, uh, you know, there's a big four accounting firms that used to be the big five, Arthur Anderson, um, Went under in the wake of the Enron scandal. So Arthur Anderson was their accounting firm and uh, was was wrapped up in, in, in that. And you know it was interesting at the time. You know I, you know we all thought that that was just this horrible thing. You know, and, and, and in so many respects it was. I mean, eighty eight thousand employees went out of business. I know a lot of partners lost their you know their their deferred comp and, and things like that. So I'm not saying it wasn't tragic, but you know for me personally and a few others. Um, that are here now at our current firm that we started nearly 21 years ago, you know, looking back, it was, you know, it, it was great because we learned so much from Anderson and, you know, some of the things that led to its downfall. And, you know, we started this firm um, nearly 21 years ago. Uh, there's five of us met up with our primary founder and um, we, we had 14 clients that came with us from Anderson. And here we are today with 63 client families and about 15 billion of assets and uh, 60 employees. So it's, it's been a, it's been a nice run. It's fantastic. You know, it's funny how you tend to learn more from the, uh, the, the challenging experiences in mm -hmm. life rather than uh, the successes. Um, 
And it's funny, I, I talked to 280-something entrepreneurs so far on the podcast, um, mm-hmm. and they all say something similar. There's always a story of mm-hmm. something that happened. There was some catastrophe, but that was usually the springboard for whatever yeah. came next. Uh, so that's fantastic. Yeah, so so in, in addition to what I, I do for a living, I also have this blog it's called the interesting fact of the day. And I, you know, I used to do it every weekday. Now it's one or two, maybe three times a week. And I actually did a blog on that point you just made uh, a few weeks ago that there was a study that they look, they, they asked people to think about both recent and distant bad experiences, like horrible experiences and really positive experiences and rank how pleasurable or painful they were. And then I asked them, how meaningful are those experiences? How would you rank them now? And as long as they were long enough in the past, <laughs> like the, the right. recent ones still sucked, right? Yeah, but they still it, as long as it was at least a few years in the past, the bad experiences were much more meaningful than the most positive experiences. And I just thought that was fascinating. And, it, you know, I've experienced it personally, not just in the Anderson story, but otherwise I'm sure you have, Absolutely. probably most of your listeners have. And uh, yeah, with, with a bit of time that heals those wounds, it ends up being the things that really makes a positive difference. I mean, they, they said in the study, you know, even, um, you know, serious illnesses or accidents, sometimes even deaths of loved ones ended up being these meaningful things. I mean, definitely it's not a positive experience, still a horrible experience, but in terms of meaningfulness, that there was this, this meaning that they took out of it was, was really quite fascinating. It's an it's a interesting study. Yeah, I, I, I had no idea that science existed around that, but uh, it makes perfect sense. Uh, absolute yeah. perfect sense. So you've got a new book, The Uncertainty Solution. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as I told you, I haven't read the whole thing yet. I, I just got a copy the other day, but uh, mm-hmm. what I've read so far is really good. What motivated you to want to write this book? Yeah, so I, I've felt like I've had a book in me for a long time. And, um, you know, surveys show that a majority of people say they have a, a book in them. Um, and during the pandemic, I mean, I'd kind of been thinking about it. I started writing for Forbes in 2019. Uh, I started writing my blog in 2017. And some of the topics for my blog are in the book. A lot of my Forbes articles are in the book. In fact, when I did like my final plagiarism check, so I use one of those like, you know, programs, it came up with like 573 instances of plagiarism or whatever. I was like, oh my gosh, like, holy cow. Cause like, have I taken something from somewhere when I, and no, it was just for my blog and my, my Forbes articles. So, so I, I'd been leading up to it and doing a lot of, you know, research and giving speeches and things like that. But in the, in the middle of the, kind of the lockdown of the pandemic, it was probably, I don't know, May of 2020, I was uh, on a panel, a webinar, you know, and I got pinged by somebody on LinkedIn who she said, I help people write books. You seem like you have a book in you. And I was like, I think I do too. So that's that's when I, I started writing. It took me nearly two years to to write it because I you know I wasn't super regimented about it. I mean, some mornings you know I'd have a week where I got up every morning and wrote the five hundred thousand or a thousand words. Uh, but you know then I wouldn't write for two or three weeks. You know, life would get in the way, and I had weekends you know marathon writing sessions of ten or hours or more of writing one weekend and then nothing for a while. So it was pretty sporadic. Which, why it took a, a while. And, it, you know, like any writer, I got stuck a lot. I'd go on long walks with my dog and kind of work through them. So it was, it was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, it's a great experience. Obviously, we're big advocates of, you know, yeah. uh, entrepreneurs having books. So when you put the book together, you've got it published. What are, the, what are the maybe key ideas that you wanted to get across to people around investing? 
Yeah. So, so the, you know, the premise of the book is around how we react to uncertainty. And as a species, we've evolved to dislike uncertainty mainly. It's a little bit more complex than, than just always disliking it. But we, we, in general, don't like uncertainty. And one of our primary motives as a species is the resolution of uncertainty. And a lot of what we do is not helpful or even counterproductive. And really what the book talks about, I mean, the, the uncertainty solution isn't finding certainty because that's often not possible. The uncertainty solution is developing mental models that you can fall back on to make better decisions or make you feel better in times of uncertainty, which in the investment markets is pretty much all the time, right? So, you know, there's this this uh, phrase, I forget who said it, but it's the, the, the adage, the hardest time to invest is now. And that's always the case, right? So no matter what time it is, you know, the, the economy and markets are doing great. It's hard to put money to work or stay invested because your worry is going to go down. When it's down, you think it's going to continue to go down. It's, it's just really difficult. So what I really wanted to do with the book is give people a way to worry less and to have more confidence about investing and to really realize that there's not some information out there that they need to know to be able to invest because most of what would be, or almost all of what would be useful in terms of knowing how to invest is unknowable in the present. Um, so, so the book really takes the reader through, through mostly stories and examples, mental models that are largely you know, investment applicable, but also applicable to a lot of other areas of, of life. I mean, I go through some, some ones about you know, bell curves versus power laws and causation versus uh, correlation. And just saying that probably doesn't make people want to read the book. But so the challenge in writing it was to make it come alive in an engaging way with stories to talk about these things that are just bedrocks of, of how to, you know, how, how to invest in the face of uncertainty. So I, I hope that when people read it, they'll have less worry around investing in uncertainty and will have more money in 20 years. And, and uh, that, that's really my, my goal with the, the book. So what are... What are a couple of the more impactful mental models that, that people should be thinking about? Well, in terms of investing, but probably the, I'd say if there's one, you know, if, if you listen to this podcast, you don't read the book, the, the one takeaway, the, the biggest one would be the mental model of the stock market is not the economy. And here's how that works. Um, so if you look at economic growth and the stock market, there is zero correlation, meaning that it's random how the stock market's going to operate as compared to the the economy. There's years that we have recessions and the market's up, and there's years we have strong, you know, growth in the economy and the market is down. But what you if you take last year's stock market return and compare it to this year's economic growth, there's a pretty strong correlation. It's about a 0.6 depending on the time period, 0.5, 0.6, which means that what the stock market is doing now tells you something about what the economy is going to do in the future. But the problem is, is we'd prefer to have it flipped, right? <laughs> we'd prefer to say what the economy is doing is going to tell us how we should invest. But it's, it's opposite of that. So what this means is, for an investor, is you can't look to what's going on in what I'll call the real world, the economy. You cannot look at what's going on in the, the news or even geopolitics or any of that to tell you how you should invest because it's flip from that. So, you know, examples are 
if, if you look at the bottom of the stock market in 2009, which was March 9th, 2009, the economic news was horrible. No one saw a way out. I mean, people were still thinking maybe we're going to go into a depression. I knew people that thought the market was going to drop another 50% from it's already down 57%. I mean, there was, and the good, the bad news kept coming. Unemployment didn't even peak until November of that year. We didn't, you know, we had the, the sovereign debt crisis. We had, you know, also we had the, the treasuries downgraded years later. So we still had all this incredibly bad news, but yet the market bottom. And the same thing happened in 2020. You know, the, the, the market bottom during COVID was March 23rd, 2020. At that point, we had only had our thousandth COVID death. Like sitting there on March 23rd, if somebody said, hey, guess what? We're going to have, you know, worldwide millions of COVID deaths and international travel is going to be, you know, canceled and sports leagues are going to go on hiatus and, um, you know, entire industries are going to be decimated and unemployment is going to spike to nearly 15 percent. I mean, we would have all probably put our, uh, you know, money under a mattress. But by knowing that mental model, you can know even though things are bad and likely to get worse in the economy, it does not tell me what I should do with my investment portfolio. And to some people, they may say, oh, you know, that's not what I want to hear. I want the certainty of knowing what's going to happen. But I think the flip side is true. It should be freeing from worry to say, I don't need to know what's going to happen in the economy or even necessarily what's happening right now to invest successfully. I can set that aside and just focus on my own behavior, which is largely set it and forget it, <laughs> and, and to be disciplined when you're going to make you know, any sort of moves or changes, you know, there's, this, there's some, some discipline to it and some, maybe some guidelines or rules that you should have. It shouldn't be based on emotion or you know, what some person on CNBC or you know, on CNN you know, says is going to happen in the economy. So that's that's the bedrock, one of the bedrock mental models. Well, you, you mentioned a very important word, the B word, behavior. Um, mm. I, I would I would guess uh, behavior probably costs investors more money than any other single cause. Mm -hmm. What what is it about the connection between uncertainty that triggers these negative behaviors in in humans? Yeah. I mean, because I think people yeah. get spooked and then they go. Or they get greedy and they make bad decisions. Yeah. So, so we, uh, if you think about it, the ability to recognize patterns is a survival um, benefit, uh, especially you know tens or hundreds of thousands of years ago. So, your ability to know whether a berry is poisonous or nutritious, or you know, uh, you know, the, the migration patterns of of prey and patterns of you know, is that a predator? Weather patterns, seasons, all those things very important for our survival. So we've evolved that if we cannot see a pattern, we feel anxious. And in some instances, it actually triggers our fight or flight response. But when we resolve uncertainty, the opposite happens. We calm down, um, you know, our, our parasympathetic nervous system is triggered. We actually get a hit of dopamine and it's pleasurable. So we have this, this relationship where we don't like uncertainty, and then, but we like it when it's it's, it's, it's triggered. So what we're, we're doing is whenever we feel uncertain, which we all feel some amount of certainty every day about all sorts of different things, there are things that we do that to resolve that uncertainty. And I'll give you a few. So, so one is we become information junkies. So we try to gain more information to get rid of the uncertainty. And that makes a lot of sense because some uncertainty is just ignorance. But most uncertainty, the, you know, the, the important ones, is about things about the future usually, especially in investing, 
which are unknowable. So as we try to get more and more information about the unknowable, it doesn't really help, but it makes us feel better. We actually get a little hit of dopamine as we take in information. I mean, think, think about COVID. I mean, if you're like me or a lot of listeners, like during COVID, I spent all this time trying to find information, especially early on, about COVID. And there was a lot of things we just didn't know. And as we know, the science changed and, and you know, what, what we thought was going to happen. So we do that constantly. And, and another aspect of that is we like to listen to experts and what their predictions of the future are. Because again, that gives a sense of certainty. And there's a lot of areas in which experts really can predict what's going to happen. But unfortunately, it's not in politics or the economy or investing. Um, experts are notoriously bad. I mean, you're better off not listening to them. So, you know, that's something else that we do because what we're doing is we're grasping for certainty because we want to get rid of that anxiety. And there's a few other things I discuss in, in, in my book that we do in, in response to uncertainty. But what we should do instead is in addition to just these mental models. So, again, like if you're so like the mental model, the stock market's not the economy, how you use that. If you're feeling uncertain about the economy or inflation or interest rates or even, you know, what's going on in Ukraine or other geopolitical things, how's that going to affect my portfolio? The way you use this to help you with the uncertainty is to say, what I do know, what I do know is that I don't need to know about that in order to invest well, right? This is going to give me certainty. I, I don't feel like there's anything I need to do. And instead, the number one strategy to have is the ability when you feel uncertainty to sit in your discomfort. And this is what, this comes from, you know, really therapists who this is what they teach their their patients that have, you know, anxiety or OCD or things like that. It's something I've also, you know, first learned in, in therapy myself, which is the ability to just say, I feel uncomfortable. In this case, I feel uncertainty and train ourselves to say, hey, you know, John, I'm feeling uncertain. And you say to yourself and I'm going to step back and I'm not going to do anything. And that is one of the, the, the toughest skills. I mean, it, it's simple, but it's not easy. But that is, that is one of the key things to do. And it's absolutely one of the best things you can do investing is to be inactive. And, and that's one, another key mental model in, in my book. And I have some really great examples and stories of how inactivity is superior to activity almost always when it comes to investing. You know, that's so interesting. And I think it's really counterintuitive. I think most people would... would uh say that they're probably much more comfortable taking some action. They feel like they're, they're actually yeah. doing something proactive. Um, right. But of course, inaction is actually an action. It's a choice. It's a, a decision. You know, it is. And, and if, you know, my, let me, let me tell you, uh, you know, a quick example of the, the activity versus inactivity. This is um, one of my favorite studies in investing I've ever read. And it's, it's called boys will be boys. Um, study of gender differences in investing. I may get the subtitle wrong, but these academics somehow got a discount brokerage to give them 10 years of data on 35,000 accounts. And they wanted to see how the various genders did in terms of investing compared to each other. So they, they looked at all their trades and, and what they did. And they found that the, the top performing um, accounts were owned by single women, followed by married men, or married women, so basically the single women were dragged down by their husbands, followed by married men, followed by unmarried men, single males. And so that was the order. And the reason for this was they found both genders, regardless if they were married or not, were equally as bad at selecting investments. On average, every investment they bought did worse than the investment they sold to buy it. 
So with every trade on average, they lost money. So those that traded more had worse performance. And what they found is that the single females traded 45% less than the single males, and it you know, cascaded down. A, a, another study now of genders by Fidelity, an internal study looking at seven years of data, found that their highest performing accounts were accounts of dead people or locked accounts. <laughs> so people, the locked accounts were mainly people that had switched jobs and hadn't moved their 401k plan and, and couldn't get in it anymore. And, you know, there's, there's studies of uh, professional investors of pension plans that, again, show that every time they make an investment switch, switch an investment manager or fund, on average, they, the fund that they hired does worse in the future than the fund, fund that they, they, they fired. And these are of professional investors that have all these consultants and staff and everything. And, you know, study after study, there's many more, study after study shows that inactivity is better than activity. And instead of like John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, says, you know, usually the phrase is, um, "Don't just stand there, do something." He says, "When it comes to investing, don't do something, just stand there." So that's a great, great quote from the founder of Vanguard. Uh, so, but it, but it's hard to do. It's simple, but it is not easy. Well, that I guess that really validates then the the whole idea of around buy good investments, buy good stocks, buy good companies, and just hang on yeah. to them. Hang on to them and let let the companies go build value, which is what they're in existence to do, right? Is to, to increase yeah. value. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, again, it, uh, so many things are simple, but not easy. And I'll tell you, um, you know, one of my editors, when she was, you know, helping me put together the book, she said, you know, John, th this book is sort of like learning that there's no Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I said, you know, I get it. And it is. And, you know, so much of the wealth management industry sells Santa Claus. They said, we're going to be Santa Claus. We're going to bring you gifts, you know, down the chimney or, you know, however Santa Claus gets the, the gifts. Uh, I don't really believe it's the chimney, even though that's the, the story, right? Um, but I think it's better to know. Like, it's better to shine the light on what's real and true and then make decisions knowing that than to be sold a bill of goods, which is there's a Santa Claus. Like, we know what's going to happen in the future. Or you, you should buy this fund or that fund. Or, you know, activity is what makes money in the investment management industry. I mean, not for the investor. Like, there's, there's, there's another side to those trades. And there's, you know, friction to those trades where somebody's, you know, making money some way. So, um, you know, you got to look at, you know, what are the incentives that are out there um, that are leading investors to do things that are against their own interest. Yeah, really, what I mean, what it sounds like is the the winning philosophy is really a very simplistic philosophy um, yeah. here, and um, I, that should be encouraging for an awful lot of people. Um, you know, I was just at a, a mastermind with a bunch of uh, pretty successful entrepreneurs, and one guy um, does a lot of investing in in uh, commercial real estate. And, you know, has investors that invest with him and all of that. And he's, he made a comment that kind of struck me. He said, look around the room. You've got all of these very successful people who are making lots of money in their business and they have no idea what to do with the money that they're making. I mean, after a certain mm -hmm. point, you've got your, mm -hmm. you know, you got yourself sort of taken care of. And now you want to invest the money and you've got people who don't have time, frankly, to figure out what mm -hmm. to do with it to the, you know, to the level of expertise maybe that you have as you're running, uh, you know, investments for, you know, for a family office. So 
that's got to be encouraging, at least for, for folks listening to this, to know that you could probably do pretty well just by p- putting the money somewhere and, and letting it ride for a while. And, and it's, it's really hard. And, you know, I, I have this example in my, my book about, you know, looking at just doing, say, a, you know, 75% in like a global equity index. Mm-hmm. So it's easy, it's cheap, and, you know, say 25% in like a muni bond fund or something like that. And, you know, how that has performed over time against a bunch of different, more complex strategies. Um, and, and that's not even taking the fees and taxes into account. And my point isn't that everybody should just index and everybody should just have these incredibly overly simple portfolios because, you know, you, you got to do what's going to be right for you in terms of, you know, behavior. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard for investors to be, you know, call it a 70, 30 just index portfolio. And in fact, I'll tell you, um, you know, everybody looks at these big college and university endowments and many of them have just done stunningly well, like, you know, Yale and Harvard and Stanford. In fact, Washington University in St. Louis, I'm from St. Louis and I teach some courses there, um, over the last few years has had the number one and number two returns. So, I mean, really solid returns. But when you take all these college endowments and you put them together, on average over the last one, three, five, 10, and even 15 years, it's, they're absolutely indistinguishable, both average and median, from a 70-30 index portfolio. Wow. So what you have is a lot of time and effort and resources being spent trying to chase what Yale's able to do or Stanford or Washington University is able to do. And most universities, even with staffs and consultants and all these resources, can't do what those universities do, which also tells you that most individuals or families, say working with a broker or a financial advisor, aren't going to be able to do that either. So if that means that, you know, like half the universities are below the 70-30, just index portfolio, right? So it's um, it just tells you that, you know, maybe unless you really, you know, want to spend the time or money or if, you know, some people make money when they sell a business or make a lot of money and they want as sort of a hobby to do investing. And that's a whole other thing. You know, maybe that's worthwhile. I mean, investing is more than just about returns for, for people, of, you know, people of wealth. But, you know, maybe... You just do something simple and low cost and effective, and you know you have less to talk about with your friends or what have you. But you can you can rest assured that you're you're beating you know the vast majority of other people, even the ones that are you know talking about this or that you know fund or you know deal that they did because you know maybe they're not taking the zeros into account or the, the low performing you know funds into account. It's it's tough if you're not performance reporting on it. So yeah, for sure. So um, I. If it's okay with you, I want to change directions for a minute. Sure. Um, you were mentioning to me uh, that you guys have a really unique structure inside uh, mm-hmm. your company. And um, it just kind of points to the the fact that you think differently about things. Um, and I would love for you to kind of explain what you've got and how it's working and, and what the motivation was for, for going in that direction. Yeah, so I... Um, I became president of our company in 2016, and we also brought in a new CEO at the at the at the same time. So we kind of have this we had this like management transition. And prior to then, we were structured pretty traditionally, where you know you had a CEO and a, a president and executive vice presidents and senior vice presidents and vice president and assistant vice presidents and you know and, and down. So it was this this pretty typical um, org structure, and we had you know. Um, 
we had job descriptions for all the jobs and we, we would do, you know, performance evaluations based on, you know, the, kind of the box the person was in. And then people had like the box that they aspired to be to, right? So, and, and I had this, um, this meeting with one of my clients who ran a Fortune 500 company, and in fact, a Fortune 100 company. And I, his, name, his name is Richard. And I said, Richard, like, um, what advice do you have for me and, and for Julie as we, you know, take over management of this company? And what he said shocked me because, I mean, this, this company of his, like tens of thousands of people, he said, don't have middle management. And the reason why there's all these boxes in the org chart is it's really based on the military because a lot of the business leaders, you know, in the late 1800s and 1900s and, and everything in the 1900s came from the military. And a lot of that's structured based on back when you had like regiments and cavalry even, like how many you know, people could uh, uh, a manager see out on the battlefield or, or whatever. Right. And, and he said, you know, really what you should have is a bunch of small teams that are autonomous, that have very loose reporting. And like that kind of stunned me. So we went on this quest where we started, you know, reading a lot more about what motivates people. And, you know, we kind of had some of this anyway, but we decided to give everybody just a lot more autonomy. And we blew up our org chart. So we have four levels. We have principals, managers, assistants, and, and coordinators. So we do have, you know, some some levels. So, I mean, there are people that, you know, aspire to different things. But what, what we told everybody is what we want you to do is to think about what your superpower is or what you're great at or what you love to do. And we want you to move towards that. And if you're great at it and you love it, you'll probably be good at it. It'll probably help the company. And we'll kind of figure out where you fit. And it may take you out of the company because it may be, you know, something that you, you don't like as much. And, you know, for me, for instance, um, you know, I moved more away from operations, which I don't like as much, <laughs> and, and more towards speaking and writing and, you know, some, you know, and some different things that I'm doing with, with, with clients. And I have loved it. And, you know, our people tend to, to love it. But, you know, based on, on research, what once you put money aside, you compensate people well, what really drives and motivates people is autonomy, uh, mastery, so the ability to move towards mastery, so they're always learning and improving, and then purpose. So we've really focused on those sort of things. And as part of autonomy, it's kind of interesting, I'm president of the company, um, I don't have any direct reports, nor does our CEO. What we have is people that are leading teams that when they need us, they come get us. <laughs> that's a different and way it, to go it, about it, isn't it? That's yeah, that's it, flipping it, it really it. is. And it's led to a problem that we have. And it's, it's a good problem to have, but we have almost no turnover. That's a hugely, you know, big advantage. I mean, that's a ginormous advantage in the marketplace. I mean, I, I've seen so many companies that go through this deal where they get caught in the turnover cycle. Mm -hmm. And um, and it just eats the company up because pretty soon you don't you know you you run out of anyone who has any institutional knowledge, and yeah. uh, not only that there's huge costs to it. That that's incredible that you effectively eliminate. Well, and why I say it's a, a problem? It's not again it's a good problem to have, but I think a little turnover is is healthy. Mm -hmm. You know, it, you know it creates opportunities for for sure. other people and, and and everything. And and we don't have any you know KPIs. We don't have any key performance um, indicators for. For people, we subjectively, you know, it's how, how, how are they serving clients? How are they investing in other people, being good teammates? And, you know, that, that has some downside, too. Sometimes it's like, well, you know, how do I, you know, what, what, you know, are we incentivizing people the right way? But we, we feel like, 
you know, if we incentivize people, you know, towards sales or, you know, increasing assets under management or, you know, any of these other profitability or any of these other things, you know, people do what they're incentivized to do. And we've decided we want to incentivize people just to be great teammates and invest in other people and do amazing client service. And the profits will take care of themselves, mm-hmm. which they largely do. I mean, it's not that we're not paying attention to that, but yeah. So it's 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 different. And as I was telling you before this talk, call, when I was I was talking about this a bit, you know, we're a professional services firm. Almost all of our sixty employees have college degrees. Most have grad degrees. We have like thirteen high school valedictorians, and like they're a very educated, motivated workforce. So what we're doing in our company. You know, I, I, have a, I have a friend that owns a, um, a, a trucking company. Like, this wouldn't work in a trucking company, right? Uh, or a distribution company or this or that. Like, I'm not saying this is right for all companies. But for our type of employee and culture, it's, it's been really, you know, really, really, uh, you know, really positive. It's a really fun, collaborative way, uh, you know, place place to work. That's, that's awesome. And, and I, th- I think you bring up a really valid point that not every system – is going to work everywhere. A lot of, there are a lot of business right. operating systems out there right now that are promoted as if they should be the the universal solution, and I, I don't I don't think that ever really plays out because you're dealing with a unique structure, a unique market, yeah. and unique individuals inside the company, and so that's it, just fantastic to hear a different take on it. So hopefully everybody listening, you know, gets walks away with some little nugget or idea that they might be able to to experiment with or apply in their own business. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, sure. So where can people get the book? So I this is I cannot yeah. recommend this enough. I mean, just with the little bit that I've read, it's going to it's going to really change the way you think about investing. Um, so uh, I know it's it's about to release. When will it be available and where can people find it? Uh, yeah, May May second. It's it's available. I mean, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's in it should be in a lot of bookstores. I think uh, you know wholesalers have bought like a thousand of them or, or, or something. Um, and for more information too, you can go to my website, John M is in Michael Jennings dot com. So that's John M Jennings. Also, my blog's there. If you click on iFod, interesting fact of the day, you can sign up for my my uh, my, my blog post. Uh, yesterday's was about you know we've all heard about the fight or flight response. There's a second response that mainly females have called the tend and befriend response. So they they act differently when they feel threatened or stressed than males do. And you know, I hit some of the um, you know some of the biology behind it and also what it meant, means for men and hypertension and stroke and uh, and uh, heart attacks as compared to women. And I I had never heard of this and I came across it in a book and I looked it up and read papers on it and I was like, holy cow. Like, why have I never heard about this? And if you think about it, it sort of makes sense. It's like the it's like the mama bear sort of thing. Like, I'm going to protect my, you know, my cubs first, whereas like the male is more like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get out there. And uh, the, the need for, you know, where females more will pull together in times of stress or threat where, where males are, you know, kind of more out there. So it's, uh, it's it's pretty fascinating. So anyway, I write on all sorts of different just interesting things like that. I love it. I love it. Well, we'll link all of that up in the show notes. Um, I highly recommend you go get the book, The Uncertainty Solution. Go get the book, uh, Amazon and every other place you can buy books. Uh, We'll link to that um, so you can get it on the website or in your podcast player in the show notes. John Jennings, thanks for being here on the show. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Authority Builder Podcast. Here are three ways you can expand your authority. Number one, get a copy of The Million Dollar Book. 
In it, I show you how to multiply your authority by writing a best-selling book in less than 90 days guaranteed. After all, you're the best spokesperson for your ideas. Go to authoritybuilderpodcast.com slash book and get your copy. Number two, join me for an upcoming Write Your Million Dollar Book Accelerator and let's jumpstart your authority building book now. For upcoming dates, go to authoritybuilderpodcast.com slash accelerator. And number three, work with me and my team to get your book done and bringing in business. Email me at steve at authoritybuilderpodcast.com and put, I want to write a book in the subject line. See you soon.